section in Ezekiel, and we're not in a stopping point because you've got uh, here in these three chapters, Ezekiel 15, 16, and 17, where uh, you have God through Ezekiel telling some pretty amazing parables. And, And as always, what God is trying to do is to show who we are and where we've come from, and then ultimately what God is doing about that. You might remember in Ezekiel 15, you have a picture of a useless vine and depicting the people. Their one mission is to be fruitful, but they have failed to be fruitful. Jesus uses that in John 15 to talk about how to be fruitful and abiding in him and bearing much fruit. In Ezekiel 16, you saw an unfaithful woman being depicted, and she is then described as basically taking all of the blessings of God and using them to sin. She's ultimately thrown them away and gone after the ways of the world. And yet, in spite of the fact that she has done this, in that parable, God is pictured as turning the tides, restoring the blessings to his people, remembering his covenant, atoning for sin so that the people would be ashamed of their sinning and ultimately turn back to God. Chapter 17 of Ezekiel has one more picture, one more parable. Uh, in fact, if you're careful with it, you will notice in verse 2, we're told that it is a parable and a riddle. So when we look at this, the parable is straightforward. The riddle, not so much. See if you can determine the riddle that is underneath the parable that is being told. And in this parable and in this riddle, we're going to talk about the problem of more and why it is such a problem when the people of God lack contentment. And so that's what we'll look at this evening. In the first 10 verses, you have the parable uh, given. I'll summarize the parable so that we can spend time in the explanation that God gives. It's a very simple story that's told. They're told here as it begins in verse 2 that there is this great eagle that comes with great wings and colorful plumage beautiful looking eagle he takes the top of the of a tree snaps it off and brings it into some fertile land and puts it by near some some flowing water abundant water and he plants that that little twig there and that turns into this vine and the vine then begins to grow up and spread its branches and spread its fruit back toward this great eagle that had plopped itself there. Now you might already in your mind have a sense of, I might get a sense of where this is going, okay? But notice something unusual happens in the picture. In verse seven, we're told another great eagle comes. And what this vine then does, even though it is a different eagle, is the branches of this vine now turn its branches and its fruit toward that new eagle away from the first that had plopped it off the top of a tree and planted it in that fertile ground and by the abundant waters. And so in asking all of that or describing all that, there is a question that is put forward in verse 9. And verse 9, you'll notice it says there a question, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all the fresh sprouting leaves wither. Will it not take a strong arm or many people to pull its roots? Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away 
on the bed where it sprouted. And so here is this final question. Now, essentially it's asking, what do you think the first great eagle is going to do with this vine that he had planted and had its branches and devotion and, and fruit toward it? And then this new eagle comes and it turns its attention and moves over there. What do you think the first eagle is going to do? Do you think the plant is going to thrive? And the answer, of course, is going to be no. This rejected eagle is going to make sure that it doesn't thrive. It is not going to survive doing that and turning its back on the first eagle. The first eagle, of course, is going to do something about this. Now, what you have in the rest of this section is an explanation of of this parable, and a lot of it is a historical explanation. It's one that as you read this, you would probably think, well, one, do we really need to know all of this? But I'll show you as this, this scene unfolds that this gets to the riddle and the main message of why this would be important to us. Verse 12, say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them in, to him in Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that he might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape when one does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke in Babylon, he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war when mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath and breaking the covenant and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised, my covenant that he broke. I will return it on his head. I will spread my net over him. And he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him. Therefore, the treachery he has committed against me. All the fugitive of his troop will fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. All right. Parable explained. And as you read this, you heard, well, we've got a king of Babylon and a king of Judah and people being moved around all over the place. Summing up simply what is going on in the telling of the story is a rehearsal of what happens at the end of Judah's lifespan as a nation. You might remember you have Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. He is captured by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, taken into captivity, taken into Babylon. And what Nebuchadnezzar does is he sets up a family member, Zedekiah, as the new king over Judah. And essentially what Nebuchadnezzar says is, don't rebel, you know, essentially be calm, rule over the land, pay your tribute, don't cause problems. And if you do that, you can rule over the people and be king over the land. But what Zedekiah does instead is he goes to Egypt. He decides to go to Egypt and say, we need armies, we need help, we need supplies, we're going to make an alliance with Egypt 
And so, you know, you can visualize the parable. The great eagle is the king of Babylon taking Zedekiah, planting him back in the land and saying, just obey me and follow me and listen to what I tell you to do and keep the covenant with me and you'll be fine. Does Zedekiah do it? No, he turns his attention to another eagle, Egypt, and looks after that instead and says, I'm going to put my devotion to you and I'm going to put my trust in you. And here's God going, now what do you think Nebuchadnezzar is going to do about that? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is not going to tolerate that. Zedekiah doesn't stay loyal to Babylon. And so because of that, Zedekiah is not going to escape. He is going to deal with the king of Babylon. Now, you might remember at the beginning I said, as you notice in verse 2, it says, tell this riddle and speak a parable. All right, we see the parable. But as we read through the parable and before we talked about the king of Babylon, did you think it was perhaps talking about something else? (laughs) It sounded more like something else, especially we just saw in chapter 15 that Israel's referred to as a vine and having these branches and it being fruitless. And so it seems that there's another picture being given here. You'll notice that there's a transition in verse 19 because it's interesting that in verse 19, it says, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath he despised. This is interesting because this can be the riddle and the parable because Zedekiah did take an oath before God to Nebuchadnezzar and said, I will obey you. I will submit to you. I will yield to you rule. And then he broke it. But has not Judah done the same thing toward God? It is interesting that this as this whole story unfolds, you're going, this sounds an awful lot like Judah. (laughs) This sounds an awful lot like Israel, who had God as their great eagle and was planted in the great land and was put there in such a way so they could flourish and have devotion. And God, even in the prophets, remembers their great devotion, how they loved him. And then what happened? Well, we've been seeing in the book of Ezekiel that One of the big problems is that rather than being loyal to God and maintaining faithful devotion to God, they've turned to their pursuits, their desires, their idols. They start seeking after other things. Their their branches, if you will, no longer pointing toward God, but now pointing to the ways of the world, pointing to the passions of the world and pointing toward sin. Now, you might go, okay, so... There's the whole story of of the parable, except for the very ending that we'll get to in a minute. Did you catch what the big problem was that God is revealing? Though he doesn't just put his finger on it and say, here's your sin. It's implied very strongly. And what I'll give you as the sin is essentially a destructive discontentment. And here's what I mean by this. What did Zedekiah have to do? He just simply had to listen to what the king of Babylon said. Just obey, just submit, don't rebel, maintain the covenant, maintain your faithfulness, do what the king says. And if you would have simply done what the king of Babylon said, all would have been fine. In fact, if you've studied Jeremiah, you might remember Jeremiah is running around saying that. Don't rebel. Don't go to Egypt. God wants you to obey Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to him. And Zedekiah refused. He refused to do it. And so here's God's message. All that you had to do was be content in your circumstance. 
and you would have lived long in the land. You know, that's Judah's story. The problem of Israel is the same. Israel, all that you needed to do was be content with God. You just simply needed to maintain your loyalty and maintain your devotion toward God. You just still needed to follow him and listen to him and serve him and submit to him. And if they had simply done that, we know from God's promises, they would have stayed on the land. God would have provided for them. God would have cared for them and given them everything they need. But instead, they were discontent. And I think it is important to realize that this is why the New Testament spends a tremendous amount of time telling us the same thing. The need to be content in God. You might remember the Sermon on the Mount, as I have it noted for you on the screen, where you have Jesus saying something that when you slow down long enough and think about it, it is a pretty shocking declaration that he makes. You have Jesus saying, if you will focus on him and his kingdom... I'll take care of everything else. That's what Matthew 6 says. Seek first kingdom of God and his righteousness. Just be content in following me, listening to me, seeking after me. And if you will do that, I'll take care of everything else. All the rest will be given so much so that Jesus says, don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't fear. You seek me, you be content in me, and I'll take care of everything else. In fact, you might remember the writer of Hebrews makes that kind of connection. And if you've read this passage, it might seem a little bit weird, but it's actually really important, the connection the writer of Hebrews makes. You might remember Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And now the rest of it is going to explain why. And tell me if this doesn't sound a little bit jarring in terms of the reasoning that God gives. I want you to be content, keep your life free from the love of money. Why? Because God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You ever thought about how that is a little bit, seems like a disconnect? Be content. Why? And his answer is, because you have me. Keep your life free from the love of money. Don't worry about stuff. Be content because you have me. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Thus we can say, the Lord is my helper. What will I fear? What do I have to worry about? What could I possibly need? I can be content because I have God. That's what Ezekiel 17 is doing, is saying to Israel, you have God, but that's not enough for you. You've turned your branches away from God and now are desiring more, desiring other things. And here is the issue with discontentment, why it is such a problem. The problem is that it says that God's not enough. 
That's ultimately the problem of being discontent. And the reason why I think the New Testament talks so much about it, of the need for contentment, is because the problem of more ultimately says that God is not enough. Now, I want you to think about just that statement for a minute, because I hope it's a little bit jarring and sounds crazy. It is crazy to say God is not enough, right? I mean, think about what it means to be God and what he can do. He is creator, all-powerful, all-knowing. He can do anything. Nothing can hold him back. His arm is not shortened. And yet, in spite of that, when we say to God, I am not content, you are not enough, then that is what ultimately is the issue of discontentment, is what we are saying before God. You are not enough for me. And maybe that colors a little bit of light on why God gets so upset when his people lack contentment. Because the lack of contentment tells God that ultimately he is not enough. And use the visual that's given for us here. Here is we are the vine and we are stretching our hands away from the Lord who made us, away from the God who gave us all things, toward things that cannot help or satisfy. Here we are spending our time saying, God, you are not enough, but all the things that you made are what I want to spend my time seeking. And that's what discontentment says. And that's ultimately the issue that's going on here. Now, here's the question I want to move on to with this. What will God do about this? This is a a problem that arises with his people. We've talked about the idolatry problem in chapter 16, and God's answer to that is remembering his covenant, restoring the blessings, and atoning for their sins. What will God do with a people who are described here as lacking contentment in God, who are unwilling to be satisfied in the circumstances that God has given to them, unwilling to be satisfied with the blessings? What will God do? Let's look at the end of chapter 17. Verse 22, thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and I will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of the young twigs a tender one and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On a mountain height of Israel, I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, and I make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. I want you to notice there's an interesting image how this ends. He says, so here's what God's going to do. He's going to plant a new tree. He's going to do the same image of what's described here. So this, I think, is our how we're on the riddle. Is he's not talking about Babylon and all of that anymore, but Israel. Here is the picture of I'm going to start all over again. It's almost a reset. I'm going to take the top of a tree and I'm going to plant it. But notice in verse 22, it says I'm going to plant it on a high and lofty mountain, kind of some kingdom imagery that's being depicted here. I'm going to hit the reset button, start with the new people, plant it on a high mountain. And notice in verse 23, it says, 
They're going to bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. I'm going to have this new vine, new plant, bearing fruit, extending branches, flourishing to such a degree that you'll notice at the end of verse 23, it says, the flourishing will be so great that under it, every kind of bird will live. And in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest so that in verse 24, it says God will be glorified by this action. In fact, so much so, he says, I'm going to dry up the arrogant and humble uh, and those who are humble, I'm going to make flourish. Now, did verse 23 sound a little familiar? Maybe that's the big question. Right? Does that sound like something Jesus might have actually said he he did if you keep your hand here and you roll over to Matthew chapter 13 and you might remember that Jesus told a little bit of a parable it's a short parable but an important parable regarding the kingdom of heaven and what he's going to say is the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field now listen it is the smallest of all seeds but when it is grown larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Listen, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He takes the Ezekiel picture and pulls it forward and goes, you remember how Ezekiel promised about how God's going to reset and he's going to create this new kingdom and it's going to be a people who are going to flourish and bear fruit. And they're going to bear fruit and flourish to such a degree that even the birds of the air, this imagery of even the world, even the outsiders are going to be able to come in and flourish and enjoy and, and live there and put their nest there. And Jesus uses that and says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is all about, is we're going to start real small, but it's going to explode to such a degree that it's going to cause everybody to come in. And so Jesus is borrowing that to say, now I've hit that reset button. Now, I hope in your mind as we're, we're rounding the corner and headed for home here, you're wondering, how does this all work with the problem of contentment? If you think about what Ezekiel 17 has done, is describing their, their discontentment that's going to destroy them. And God's answer is, so I'm going to have this, this fruitful tree and it's going to be the shade for branches of birds of every sort. And everybody's going to know that I am the Lord. Let's, let's pull this together and think about the, the picture that God is going to give here of what he's doing with this new kingdom that we are a part of. Let's start with this. Our mission that we have seen throughout the book of Ezekiel is that we are to be a people who bear fruit. We are to be a people that are a shelter for all kinds of birds, just a refuge. I, I hope you will hold on to that image for a minute as Ezekiel pictures it or as Jesus pictures it. In this kingdom, it builds and grows and flourishes to such a degree that Birds of all kinds want to live there. They want to nest there. They all want to be a part of this. And so there they are nesting and doing that. In this section, what is keeping Israel from being that kind of plant? Or for us, what is keeping us from being that kind of plant 
that flourishes and grows to such a degree that all will want to come and be a part of this glorious kingdom that Christ has established. Here's what I want us to think about is that we fail in the mission of reaching the world when we lack a satisfaction in God. I said, now, why, why is that a big deal? I'll put it together in a, in a few ways. The problem of more is what is ultimately holding us back. Israel failed because they were not satisfied in God. They were looking for more. And by looking for more, do you remember what the nations did? Rather than the nations coming to them and wanting to belong as God's people, they blasphemed God and said, you guys are crazy. You guys, why would we want to be a part of you? And so God says, I have to send them away because they're not reflecting me. I want us to realize the same thing is happening here in regards to the question with us. If we do not find our satisfaction in Christ, then what do we have to offer the world? What ultimately are we telling them? Why would the world want to belong to this kingdom if what we are ultimately advertising is we're not satisfied in Christ either? We're making the same pursuits as them. You're seeking happiness out there. Hey, so are we. One of the things that should be distinctive in setting us apart is that as the world seeks after pleasures and goes after all these things, and we might sit back and decry it and go, I can't believe, look at all these things that people are doing, all that, as they're seeking after, seeking after, trying to fill the void in all of these different activities and sins. And we have to step back and say, do you understand that the satisfaction you're looking for is in Christ? But here's the problem. If we aren't showing that in how we live, they're not going to see that. If we are just as much discontented in our lives as they are in theirs, why would the birds come to this kingdom and make its nest in its branches and dwell there. So I put it this way. The problem of more is ultimately this. It nullifies our ability to be the light of the world. That's why this parable is told. Because you're not satisfied in God... You can't be what God has called you to be. Why is God restarting with a whole new plant and plant and doing it all over again? Because you aren't joyous in God. You are not finding your satisfaction in him. And friends, when we try to find our joy in the physical, then what do we have to offer the world? When our joy, when our, our contentment, or when our things about our pursuits are worldly, rather than spiritual, then what do we have to tell the world? Why would they take shelter in the Lord if we're not taking shelter in the Lord? If we don't see Christ as all satisfying, then why would the world see Christ as all satisfying? If we don't see him as everything as the reason why we live and breathe and flourish in this life, 
Why would the world see that? And that's what the parable is exploring. As God says, well, I'm going to have to start over and I'm going to have to have a people that bear fruit and flourish whose branches are always pointed toward me. Because in doing so, those on the outside are going to see that and want to be a part of it. So let me say it this way, just two more things for you. God has put within us a desire to find joy and satisfaction. I think the book of Ecclesiastes hammers that point is that there is an emptiness that constantly makes us seeking and looking, has put eternity into our hearts as we're trying to reach and grab and find. God wants us to pursue that so that you will pursue him because he's the only place you get that. One of the things that's supposed to happen is we're supposed to understand the emptiness of the pursuing of the world So that as we pursue joy, we find it in Christ and tell everybody else, hey, guess what? It's not out there in the world. All the things that you are doing are not satisfied. You don't want to dwell in the worldly kingdoms. You want to be in the kingdom of God because look at the joy and the peace and the satisfaction and the contentment that I am experiencing. I want you to be a part of it as well. But if we don't have that contentment, if we don't find that joy in him, then that can never happen. We will flourish because we are enjoying Jesus. Or if you were here this morning, can I borrow the imagery? The good soil is able to explode with fruit because you are enjoying who God is and you are not distracted by everything else and pursuing those things. Flourishing only can happen in a pursuing of God and God alone. And what is supposed to happen is that the world will see that and they will come and be a part of it. You ever wondered why God says, I don't want you to complain. Phil Robertson, great about that. You know, how long is this complaining? Great lesson he did on that. Why is it so important not to complain? Because if we're walking around complaining, how are we any different than anybody else out there? And why would they see any kind of contentment or joy or satisfaction in our pursuit of Christ if we have the same complaint as they do? You see the problem. And this is ultimately the issue. The problem of more is that it completely destroys the gospel message and completely destroys the mission. Contentment is far more than just you need to be satisfied with what you have. True. But God frames it in a far bigger way. That ultimately what our contentment is supposed to do is to show everybody that we know. That we have the solution to their discontentment. That we have the solution to their lack of satisfaction and their lack of joy. That we have what will give life and flourishing and joy and peace. And it's not out there in the world. And so friends, I would end by by this. We are able to flourish if we can go after a strong pursuit of killing discontentment in our lives, that we would no longer be discontent with where we are, with what God has given us, with our circumstances, 
but rather see the beauty of where God has placed us with a purpose so that we can share that joy and share that contentment and share that satisfaction to the world around us. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we see that your people in the past were not satisfied in you. We see, Lord, that they looked for all kinds of other paths, all kinds of other pursuits to find the answers to joy and satisfaction and were left empty and ultimately worthy of judgment. And Lord, I pray that we would learn that lesson and see that you have called for us in belonging to the kingdom of your son to be a people who flourish in him. And Lord, I pray that we would find our our deepest desires and our greatest joys in your son because that is the only place to look for them. And help us to have our eyes wide open to see that Satan's lies and Satan's temptations do not offer what we are looking for. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for how many times so frequently we choose to not be satisfied in you, that we are not grateful for you, that we do not find joy in this relationship with you, that we are not content in what we have and where we are and how things are going. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a fresh zeal And a fresh satisfaction in you. Help us to see that we exist to be fruitful so that other people can come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It is a, a, a shocking picture that Ezekiel unveils. And a challenging one at that to consider if we're satisfied in him alone. Or if our satisfaction is going to be found somewhere else. Are we looking for other things? Or do we see that our only joy can come in a joy that comes from God? And we want to help you in that pursuit. Can we help you in any way turn to him with all of your heart to find your joy in him? To find your lasting satisfaction in him? Just let us know if we can help you. You can let us know right now while we stand and while we serve.